BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with these so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized until today. I'm Preeti Chipper, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. When you hear the name James Bond, what do you think of first? A license to kill? impeccably tailored suits, vodka martinis that are shaken, not stirred. But if there's any character in that spy franchise who has endured as long as 007 himself, it's the woman who spent as much of her time behind a desk as Bond did out in the field saving the world from various threats. The secretary known most often and most affectionately as Miss Moneypenny. The role of James Bond has changed a lot of hands over the years. And so has the role of Moneypenny, but out of a total of 25 films under the Eon Productions banner, only one woman has brought Money Penny to life a record number of times. Her name was Lois Maxwell. And on today's episode of Forgotten Women of Genre, we're going to tell you all about the actress whose presence in the Bond movies wasn't just memorable, but downright iconic. Lois Maxwell was born Lois Hooker on February 14, 1927, in Kitchener, Canada. Her father, William, was a teacher, and her mother, Ruth, was a nurse. Growing up in Toronto, it seemed that young Lois always had her sights set on more. More opportunity, more challenges, just more from life in general. She went to high school at Lawrence Park Collegiate Institute, but in her spare time was said to be disappointed by the low amount of money she was raking in from the occasional babysitting job. With more in mind, she got her first official job as a waitress at Canada's largest luxury summer resort, Big Win Inn. But Lois's pursuits didn't stop there. Around 1942, during the height of World War II, she ran away at the age of 15 to join the Canadian Women's Army Corps, a non-combatant branch formed in order to release men from certain jobs, like drivers and mechanics, so they could go off and actively serve in the war effort. Lois quickly joined the Army show in Canada performing music and dance numbers as a way of entertaining the troops, and was later posted to the United Kingdom in the same role. Her true age was discovered as soon as she relocated to London, but to avoid being deported back to Canada, she accepted a discharge from the army and enrolled at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, where she met and befriended a fellow student, an aspiring actor named Roger Moore. According to Moore, he and Lois often partnered together because he was the only actor in the class tall enough to play opposite her 5'9 stature. By the late 1940s, Lois had moved to Hollywood. She was only 20 years old. Her first credited role in the Shirley Temple comedy That Hagen Girl earned her a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer. In 1949, she posed for a photo shoot in Life magazine with another up-and-coming young actress, Marilyn Monroe. 
Around that same time, Lois Hooker would officially become Lois Maxwell, taking the last name of a friend who was a ballet dancer. But after her first breakout role, Maxwell's career stalled a little. Most of her jobs, after that Hagen girl, consisted of minor parts in B-movies, and she soon got sick of the Hollywood life and moved back to Europe, living in Rome between 1950 and 1955, while she worked on a number of Italian films, one of them featuring a then-unknown Sophia Loren, and briefly dabbled in a career as an amateur race car driver. During a trip to Paris, Maxwell met the man who would become her husband, TV executive Peter Marriott. They married in 1957 and moved to London, where they had two children, a daughter Melinda, born in 1958, and son Christian, born in 1959. By 1962, Maxwell was desperate for a substantial acting job. Not necessarily a role she could sink her teeth into, but a gig she could take for, well, the money. Her husband Peter had suffered a heart attack, which left Maxwell the only one able to financially support the family. I had a husband who was desperately ill, with two small children and no money, so I called producers I had worked with before and said, help me. Terrence Young, a director Maxwell had worked with on his first film, the 1948 drama Corridor of Mirrors, had once turned her down for a part on the grounds that she, quote, looked like she smelled of soap. But he was casting for a new project, 1962's Dr. No, and offered Maxwell a choice of two parts, secretary, Miss Moneypenny, or love interest, Sylvia Trench. Eunice Gason was the other actress in contention for both roles, and when Maxwell expressed concerns about performing Sylvia's revealing scene in Dr. No, Gason would go on to play the part of the first official Bond girl in cinema, while Maxwell took the role of Moneypenny for two days of work and £100 a day. She wore her own clothes as Moneypenny's wardrobe for the duration of filming. Although Young may not have been impressed by Maxwell's looks, there was one man who was reportedly charmed by her, James Bond creator Ian Fleming. Maxwell once recalled that when she was introduced to Fleming, the writer said, When I wrote Miss Moneypenny, I envisaged a tall, elegant woman with the most kissable lips in the world, and you, my dear, are the epitome of that dream of mine. 007 is here, sir. I'll see you in a minute. Moneypenny. What gives? Me, given an ounce of encouragement. Mm. You never take me to dinner looking like this, James. Mm. You never take me to dinner, period. Uh. I would, you know. Only Anne would have me court-martialed for uh, illegal use of government property. Flattery will get you nowhere, but don't stop trying. The bantering relationship between Moneypenny and Bond that would come to define their dynamic throughout many incarnations on screen and many different pairs of actors wasn't part of the original Bond stories written by Fleming. According to Richard Maibaum, who contributed on many of the screenplays for the films, Fleming once told him with amusement. The pictures are so much funnier than my books. Part of that should be credited to the screenwriters, who gave the characters their long-running flirtation filled with double entendres and undeniable chemistry. But the rest of it is definitely in part thanks to Maxwell's performance against Sean Connery. Even if Bond and Moneypenny's romance would never be realized on screen, and apparently didn't stop the fans from wanting it to happen. Moneypenny was down-to-earth and charming, Maxwell said in an interview with a Canadian newspaper in 2001. Everyone hoped James Bond would end up with her because all the other women were so two-dimensional. She was real. After starring in five more Bond films throughout the 1960s, from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Love Twice, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service, 
Maxwell was once again in the market for more. In preparation to once again reprise her role as Moneypenny in 1971's Diamonds Are Forever, she demanded an increase in pay. The role was very nearly recast right then and there, but eventually, Maxwell was brought in for a brief scene that was added at the request of the film's producers. The customs officer's cap she wears in the scene with Sean Connery's bond was intended to cover up her hair because she had already dyed it for another role. Mr. Franks, your passport is quite in order. Well, anyone seeing you in that outfit, Money Penny, would most certainly be discouraged from leaving the country. What can I bring you back from Holland? A diamond? In a ring? Would you settle for a tulip? Yes. Maxwell was reunited with her former classmate Roger Moore when the actor took up the mantle of James Bond from Connery, and the two would star together in his first appearance in the role in 1973's Live and Let Die. By then, she had already outlasted two Bonds. In addition to Connery, she had featured opposite George Lazenby's single appearance as Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. When asked to choose which Bond actor was her favorite, she most often said it was Connery because, in her words, he wasn't replacing anyone, so he made it his own. But she also said that she had the most fun working with Moore. I always said I'd have Roger for a husband, but Sean for a weekend lover. As Moneypenny, Maxwell would appear in more Bond movies than any of the actors who portrayed the leading spy with a license to kill. But when Moore announced that he would finally be hanging up his dinner jacket and gun with his last appearance as Bond in 1985's A View to Kill, producer Cubby Broccoli was forced to break the news to Maxwell that they would be looking to recast Moneypenny with a younger actress. Maxwell was 58 by then, and according to reports, suggested that they should promote her Moneypenny to the new M for the upcoming Timothy Dalton era of Bond movies, which sadly didn't happen. Moore personally expressed his disappointment in the decision to have Maxwell not continue on in the franchise in an interview with BBC Radio 5 Live, saying, It was a great pity that, after I moved out of Bond, they didn't take her on to continue in the Timothy Dalton films. I think it was a great disappointment to her that she had not been promoted to play M. She would have been a wonderful M. It wasn't until the casting of Judy Dench in 1995's Golden Eye that would mark the first time the role of M would be played by a woman in the franchise. You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant. A bean counter more interested in my numbers and your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur a relic of the Cold War, whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, 007. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. Apart from her role as Moneypenny, Maxwell starred in several other films and television series throughout the 1960s. The same year that she starred in Dr. No, she made a slightly more subdued appearance as a nurse in Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Lolita, she also appeared in an episode of another British spy series, The Avengers, as well as episodes of crime shows like Ghost Squad, The Baron, Gideon's Way, and The Saint, and lent her voice to the children's sci-fi television show Stingray. But she never strayed far from the Bond franchise either, appearing in a total of seven documentary films between 1987 and 2000. By 1973, Maxwell's husband Peter Marriott, who had never fully recovered from the heart attack he had suffered in the 60s, died. After his death, she returned to Canada, where she put down roots in Ontario and wrote a thrice-weekly column for the Toronto Sun under the pseudonym Ms. Moneypenny from 1979 until 1994, partly to make ends meet. When her time at the newspaper ended, she moved back to the UK to be nearer to her daughter, 
By then, she had largely stepped away from acting, becoming a businesswoman in the textile industry. Maxwell's final film role would be 2001's The Fourth Angel with Jeremy Irons. By then, she was struggling with her health and underwent surgery for bowel cancer that same year. After the procedure, she moved to Australia to live with her son and his family in 2002, where she continued to work on her autobiography, which she always joked would be called, I was born a hooker. She remained in Australia until her death on September 29, 2007, at the age of 80. After her passing, she was immortalized by her longtime friend and co-star, Roger Moore, who reflected on their history of working together and said, She was my lucky token, and those that remember the Bond films with Moneypenny will remember her with great affection. But he also admitted that the role that garnered her the most notice was probably the role that limited her to a certain degree. I'm afraid that she sort of got typecast as Miss Moneypenny. That's what producers do, unfortunately. They put people in categories. They don't seem to move people out of them. Whether you're a Bond fan or not, it is impossible to envision a world in which the character exists without Moneypenny. But at the same time, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between the secretary and actress who played her for a record 14 number of times. Maxwell's presence on screen was a constant across three decades of Bond movies, and in some ways, maybe that was taken for granted. But there's no doubt whatsoever that she made the role of Moneypenny what it is today, the independent, clever, intelligent woman who knows how to keep that playboy spy James Bond on his toes and knows better than to fall for him too. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Carly Lane and read by Preeti Chibber. You can find the script of the episode and so much more at scififangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at scififangirls. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.